Brethren, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the glory, mystery, and beauty of the Lord's sovereign love. And this was really the fourth and final installment on our study and examination of the subject of sovereignty with respect to the name of our church, Sovereign Grace Bible Church. We talked about the fact that God's sovereign love gives him glory, and we went directly to the text of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7, which helps us to understand why I'm even talking about this concept of his sovereign love giving him glory. It's in this chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, that we learn that as Paul is describing our former manner of life, it's not a pretty picture, but he describes the fact that we were walking in a death march of sin. And then he describes the merciful love of God in verse 4, talks about our redemption using those remarkable verbs that he employs. And then he says this in verse 7, in order that, in other words, we have been redeemed in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so in answer to the question, what is being achieved through our redemption? What is being achieved is God's glory. That's the ultimate point and purpose for which we have been saved. God is giving himself glory. God is being glorified by means of our redemption. We then talked about the mystery of his sovereign love, and this really gets into a rather interesting concept because even though we can say that we know the purposes of God in our salvation, that he is bringing glory to his name, we still have to confess that it is a marvelous and remarkable mystery that anybody is, has been saved. In view of the sin that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you would have to ask the question, how can this even be? And so we considered the hymn of Watts, where the question is raised, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room, when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Left to ourselves, apart from God's intervention, that's all that any human being would do. We would all rather starve than come. You know, when the Apostle Paul describes the wonder of our salvation, having given chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of Romans, talking about the great work of our redemption, Paul then bursts out with this expression where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Yes, God's ways are ultimately unfathomable. That's a hard word for me to say half the time. I get it right, I think, about half the time. But it is, in fact, true. God's ways are ultimately unfathomable. We can understand the nature of his ways to a point, but at the end of the day, we're mere creatures. And his ways ultimately are beyond us. And his judgments are unsearchable. 
This is the mystery of which I speak when I say, what a wonder it is that God would save anyone. And then we talked about the beauty of his sovereign love. And I mentioned Phyllis Wheatley, who was, as a child, was kidnapped as a chattel slave. And her poetry that she wrote was remarkably without the bitterness that we hear from so many of the advocates of social justice in the modern day. Instead of being filled with a, a root of bitterness, she gave glory to her Redeemer through her wonderful poetry. And what she was doing was she was showcasing, demonstrating, displaying the beauty of the Lord's sovereign love in fulfillment of Ephesians 2.7. And in many respects, she's just like Joseph, who could have crushed his brothers in their time of need. But instead, Joseph extended grace, mercy, and compassion to them in the image and likeness of the Lord himself. This is God's sovereign love. It is a love that gives him glory. It is a marvelous love that exceeds our capacity to understand. And it is the very love in which we are enveloped day in and day out. And brethren, this is something we need to review and think about because it is indeed a beautiful love. I would just say to you, of all the things that you have ever considered, all the things that you have ever viewed and contemplated, there is nothing more beautiful than our God. There's nothing more beautiful than the work that he accomplished in our redemption. We just sang the hymn, fairest, fairest Lord Jesus. He is the fairest of all. Fair are the meadows, fair still the woodlands. By the way, I'm glad to be here and the beach is beautiful, but I love the woodlands. And they are fair. They are beautiful. Robed in the blooming garb of spring, but then it says Jesus is fairer. Jesus is pure, who makes the woeful heart to sing. Only God can achieve that. Fair is the sunshine, fair is still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Those are rich words. And they bring us to this very contemplation of the beauty of our Lord's sovereign love. Again, there is nothing more beautiful than our Redeemer. There's nothing more beautiful than his work of salvation. So brethren, this morning, we're going to consider and continue our consideration of the beauty of our Lord in view of his gracious and merciful work of salvation. Again, we are sovereign grace Bible church. Now, I know you know this, but the word grace is a substantive and the word sovereign is a modifier, which means that when we talk about grace, what we're saying is, is that the grace that we speak of the grace that we profess to others is a grace that was sovereignly given to us by our sovereign king. 
It's not something that we merited. It's not something that we somehow achieved or received because of some good in us. No, it is something that was sovereignly given to us by our sovereign king. In order to consider this, in order to evaluate this, we really need to go back to the section of Scripture that we were in last time, last Lord's Day, Ephesians chapter 2. Because it's in this chapter that we learn a great deal about the nature of God's saving grace. Paul spends a great deal of time and energy explaining it to us. And simply put, as we go through this text, and we'll continue it somewhat next, next Lord's Day, one thing, the first thing that we need to consider is this, is that the grace of God's salvation stands on the foundation of his mercy. We've kind of already touched on this. We've seen some of this in our study from last time, but we really need to nail this down and understand that the grace of salvation stands on the foundation of of God's mercy. If we lose that connection, we're not going to understand the nature of God's saving and redeeming love. Secondly, this text helps us to understand that the grace of salvation reveals the nature of God's love. So we'll talk about mercy quite a bit, and we're going to talk about what this tells us about the nature of God's love. And then, thirdly and finally, and this is very much in the text of Scripture, and again, all these things I'm quite sure you're very, very and deeply familiar with, but the grace of salvation clearly and obviously nullifies all boasting. This is Paul's argument. If we're going to understand anything about the grace of salvation, one thing we've got we to gotta understand is, is that this completely eradicates and destroys all boasting in self. There's only one in whom we boast, and that that is our Redeemer. So let's consider this first point in principle, that the grace of salvation stands on the foundation of God's mercy. Now, first of all, why am I first talking about mercy? You say, I thought we were talking about grace. Well, I'm starting off with mercy because that's exactly where the Apostle Paul begins both conceptually and explicitly in verse 4. Conceptually, before he got to the principal or primary verbs that begin in verse 5, when he talks about our being made alive together with Christ, being raised up with him and being seated with him in the heavenly places, before he gets to those primary verbs, what does he do? He describes our depravity, verses 1 through 3. And then he gets to the fourth verse, and he gives, I believe, what what is one of the most beautiful adversatives in Scripture. He says, but God, but God being rich in what? Mercy. Mercy. Now, first of all, what are we talking about when we talk about mercy? We could spend a lot of time talking about this and. Many articles have been written about it, but I believe that it's quite simple, really. When you distill all the studies that can be done on this word, you really get to this idea when we talk about God being merciful to us. We're talking about a free act of kindness. A free act of kindness. 
I think that's probably one of the best summations uh, that you can have. In fact, that's one of the summations, uh, that is the summation, excuse me, from the theological word book of the Old Testament. The word hesed, mercy, speaks of this idea of a free act of kindness. By the way, that's kind of the idea of kindness. If I have to give you something that I'm obligated to give to you, it's no longer kindness. It's just payment for what is due. The fact that it is kindness really speaks of the idea of freedom. In other words, God freely gives to the sinner that which he does not owe to the sinner. God doesn't owe anything to us respecting the idea of compassion or mercy. And so ultimately, when we talk about mercy, we're talking about God's compassion or his pity or his tenderness being given to those who do not and cannot deserve it. And again, this is implicitly obvious in the text of Ephesians 2. What were we doing when God mercifully redeemed us? We were marching in the very opposite direction of him as rebels in his universe. Paul says again, and you were dead, or literally using the participial form, he says, and you were being dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And by the way, let me just put a bookmark there and say that is a remarkable summation of the co-belligerence of the evil of men and the evil of the demonic forces in this world. We'll talk about that later. And then he says this, including himself in this cesspool of evil. He says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature what? Children of wrath. That's what we deserved. Justice. Wrath. That's what we deserved. I have no desire to demean this text, but there's a part of me that can't help but to think of the Looney Tunes cartoon, remember Tweety Bird and Sylvester the Cat? And sometimes Tweety Bird would be running in one direction and Sylvester the Cat would pick him up by the scruff of his neck, if birds have scruffs of the neck, pick him up, turn, turn him around. And so immediately, as soon as he did that, instead of going in that direction, he's going 180 degrees in the opposite direction. This is what God has done, in a sense, to us. We were going that way. God grabbed us by his sovereign grace and redirected us in a 180-degree direction. Instead of running away from him, we now pursue him with joy as willing servants, as we've already talked about. And how did he do this? Well, we were dead. Remember that? So what's the first act that is mentioned in our redemption? We were made alive. We went from necros, death, to life in Christ. We were made alive together with Christ. 
raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So now our position in Christ, we know, is eternally sure. Everything that Paul delineates in in these verses helps us to see and understand that our salvation is a sure and finished work. And it is the very opposite of what we were and what we were doing. And we deserved none of it. This is an implicit message of mercy. This is why verse 4 is so important. What is implicit in what I've just read is made explicit in verse 4 when he gives that adversative. After describing the, the grossness and the depth of our depravity, he says, but God being rich in mercy. And then he says, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, repeats that idea, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So there you have those words. You have mercy, love, and then grace. All these are tied together. They're interrelated, but the order of these words is important to consider. And the placement and use of the word mercy is key for our understanding of what we're talking about. And so before mentioning the grace of salvation and even God's love, Paul reminds us of the riches of God's mercy. The riches of his, God's, of, of his mercy. So he says, being rich, being rich in mercy. That's another way of saying God had the ability to give it. He had the capacity to give this remarkable mercy. I may be selling my home back in North Carolina soon. Can you imagine if I came up to a buyer who said, hey, I'm interested in buying your home. And I said, and I said to him, okay, um, we'll process the papers and you'll have a credit check and all that. And he said, no, 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 no. Let me demonstrate right now my ability to buy your home. And then he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out some pennies and he starts counting them one after the other, three four, five, six, and I would stop and say, uh, sir, um, no offense, but our home is going to sell for more than 10 cents or whatever you have in your hand. If you watch an individual do that, you think, what's wrong with this person? They don't seem to understand that this is going to cost a little bit more than 10 cents or whatever he's holding. God, who has all power, omnipotent mercy and love gave mercy to us out of his riches, out of his infinite riches. This is the point that Paul is giving to us. He's wanting us to look into the treasury of God's mercy and understand that the love that has been set upon us and the grace of salvation that has been set upon us comes out of the storehouses of his abundant mercy. Again, this destroys any notion that the Lord was being drawn toward us by anything that was attractive about us. And the dark language of verses 1 through 3 reinforce this point. By the way, think about that for a moment. It's interesting that Paul spends all that time talking about how depraved we were. 
again, this is the implicit notion of mercy. But what this does is, this contrast between our our perversity and our corruption and our sin and the beauty and the wonder of God's mercy and of grace and salvation, the contrast is the point. If you ever go to a jeweler and you buy a, a, a gem, a, a diamond, maybe for a ring, when I bought the wedding ring for my bride, I went into the jeweler shop, and what did he do? He laid out a black piece of velvet and placed the gem on top of it to, sh- to do what? To showcase the con- by contrast, the beauty and the brilliance of this gem. As the lights were shining on it, you had that black contrast that gave you the radiance of the gem even more. In a sense, that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, here's the darkness of your sin, but now consider the beauty and the brilliance of God's mercy, his love, and his grace. But understand, his love and his grace all flow from the treasury of his mercy. And know this. Brethren, when I mention grammatical principles to you, I'm not trying to um, send you back to grammar school, but I just want to make sure you know what's in the text. Sometimes the translators don't really give you the sense of it. Sometimes they do. In this case, they do give the proper sense of it. God being... It's not just God is rich, which is similar, but being speaks to the idea of a participle. And so what that's saying is, is that God is one who is rich in a perpetual and ongoing sense. He's rich in mercy always because this is a part of who he is. This is his nature. So he possesses all mercy. So he is plusios own, plusios own. Again, the word plusios speaks of the idea of wealth. God who owns all things, this is one of the reasons why we spoke about him being the despotain. This is key because as the king of the universe, he owns all things. Psalm 50 and verse 10 says, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains. And everything that moves in the field is mine. And then he becomes hyperbolic in his description of this. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. He owns everything. He has all wealth, all riches. And this is a transcendent concept. Even if I could give you all the riches of the world, you would still not be able to, and I wouldn't be able to, relate to this idea of God owning everything. If you were given all the riches of the world, there would still be a profound disconnect between your understanding of having all these things and God having all these things. Because first of all, you would, and neither would I, be able to steward all that wealth. God can and does. But most of all, our possessions cannot and do not define who we are in terms of the substance of our being. All that is in creation tells us something about God because why? He made it. In other words, creation is an expression of his attributes, the attributes of his power, the attributes of his wisdom. He made it. And so we look at the things of the universe, the things of the world, and the things that he possesses in this world, and they all point back to him. 
as the creator who's all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing. But more than this, when we talk about God being rich in mercy, we have to understand that the mercy that he has is not just something that he possesses like the cattle on a thousand hills. The mercy that he possesses is a part of who he is. This is his nature. This is who God is. And it is this foundation which helps us to understand, then, the nature of God's love. And this is our second point. Having considered this idea of him being rich in mercy, Paul then says in verse 4 the following, because of his great love with which he loved us. Mercy and then love... And then he says, by grace you have been saved. This is the order. These connected ideas are all together, and yet they're distinguishable and they're important to consider. Mercy, love, and grace. I would suggest to you, brethren, that the relationship between God's mercy and his love is absolutely foundational, and if we disconnect those ideas we're going to run into a heap of trouble in terms of understanding the nature of God's love. Frankly speaking, society, modern society is fraught with confusion concerning the nature of God's love. You've heard people say, love is love. I have no idea what that means. And neither do you. That's just a circular statement. And, and the fact that they're not defining love means that they're not really saying anything. But they say love is love, and what they're really doing is they're saying, well, you know, if you love somebody, it doesn't matter what you love. You're justified because you love the person, the thing, whatever. There was a, an American woman who actually married, legally married the Eiffel Tower 15 years ago. Uh, she sought a divorce, I'm not kidding, and she's actually uh, um, now interested in offense. So, you know, I mean, if love is love and you get to define what love is based upon whatever you want, well, then you get to define it, anything in the universe as you see fit. But brethren, we go to the word in order to understand God and in order to understand his love, the nature of his love. I've been burdened about this subjectivism that we have not only in the society, but even in the church. There have been men who have been redefining love in a way that is corrupting to our understanding of biblical love, and it is a problem. So far, I've, I've talked to people about Rob Bell, and it's interesting. I learned about Rob Bell when I was in North Carolina, and that was kind of a distant thought and idea, but apparently here, as he was here in California, um, he has a lot more followers and a lot more influence here in this state. But if you'll recall, he wrote in 2011 a book called Love Wins. And I remember getting the book, reading it quickly, and I ended up writing Alter to an Unknown Love as a refutation of his book. Bell, in his book, advances several unbiblical views of love. And what's remarkable is, is that the views of love that he presents are also promoted by other evangelicals 
indirectly by authors that they promote. And these same evangelicals were complaining about Rob Bell and what he wrote in his book. It was a remarkable display of confusion and hypocrisy. But if these men really didn't like what Rob Bell was teaching, then they needed to shut down the other authors that they themselves were promoting because Rob Bell denies, first of all, penal substitution, the penal substitution of Christ. And not only does he deny it, but he frankly mocks the idea that Christ bore our sin and the wrath and the just judgment that was due to us, this he bore on his own person when he died on the cross. Bell denies this. He also teaches the doctrine of purgatory, or I would call it purgatorial reconciliation, where you tell people that if you die and you don't believe in Christ, well, you'll just go into purgatory, and through your suffering, you'll merit the love of God and you'll bounce back into heaven. What a damning thing it is to tell people that if they die, they'll have a second chance. William Hendrickson rightly calls the doctrine of purgatory a gospel-denying doctrine. And he advances a strange notion of God's love that in the end all will be saved. And thus he denies the reality of hell, a direct contradiction of the teachings of Scripture, the teachings of Christ. And what he ends up communicating in this book, and it's really kind of throughout the book, but he ends up teaching a kind of view of mankind where we presume that man is somehow worthy of the salvation that God offers. But brethren, we go to the Word of God and when we consider the worth of man, we go back to Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 and what we realize is, is that we're children of wrath. Brethren, I say to you, biblical love is not God showing us favor through our merit or our suffering for our sins in some presumed realm of purgatory, which doesn't exist. God's love is not, and the love that we have, is not self-serving licentiousness. It's not hedonism or a selfish pursuit of pleasure. And it's not indiscriminate. God sets his love upon his children in a way that is distinct from the love that he shows to all mankind. How strange it would be if I told you that I love my children no different than I love all other children in the world. You would think I'd be a very bad father if it was all the same. But the love that God has for his own is a special redeeming love. And it's certainly not the love that was popularized by Whitney Houston in the song, The Greatest Love of All. Do you remember that? Where the song says, I found that the greatest love of all is inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself, it is the greatest love of all. No. When we comprehend what God's love is, Knowing and understanding that it flowed from the wellspring of his infinite mercy, then we can understand a little bit better the nature of his love. Then we can understand that the love that he set upon us was one that found no merit in us, 
it was, in fact, an act of merciful kindness to us. As such, it was an expression of compassion and pity in view of our desperate condition as we were the children of wrath. I want you to know we're almost done unpacking. I've got to be the slowest unpacker and mover. In the, I don't know. It's, why is this taking so long? I've been fixing things, trying to find things, and, you know, we're getting there. But as I was unpacking one box, I found a track that was probably given to me three decades ago. And this probably sounds familiar to you. On the cover of the track, the gospel track, it says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, it's true that God does love all mankind, and he does show and demonstrate that love. Jesus taught about this. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So I'm to love my enemies in the same way that God loves his enemies. With a beneficent love. A love of kindness. A love that shows mercy. Pity. But this is not the same thing as his redeeming love. Because God is going to judge his enemies someday. And in that day, his mercy will cease. And so while it is true that God extends his love to all men in a general sense, we warp our understanding of his love if we just make it all the same and fail to distinguish between his redeeming love and his beneficent love. If you have a bulletin, you have a tract in it. What is, the, what is the true message of the rainbow? Brethren, it is Pride Month, as we hear. And you're seeing rainbows all over the place. Use this to tell people about what the rainbow is communicating. The Lord had destroyed the world in his just judgment through a deluge. When we talk about the rainbow, we must remember that God gave Noah the promise that he would never again destroy all flesh by means of a flood. What is this but an expression and manifestation of his covenant of grace? And so what did God do? Well, he showed him the cachette, the bow, in the sky. We refer to this as the rainbow because that's what it is. It's a bow. It's God's bow. A cachette is just that. It is a bow. It is the warrior's bow or a hunter's bow. In the Old Testament, the cachette, the bow, could speak of the power of nations by virtue of their armament by having bows. Or it is sometimes used of the wrath of God that he pours out against the wicked, Lamentations 2.4. When we think about the bow in the sky, the rainbow, 
We have to remember that this is God's celestial sign that shows forth his merciful and patient restraint. Who's ever shot a bow in here? Okay, so if you've ever pulled and drawn a recurved bow, and that would have been the kind of bow that they had in the day, as you draw the bow, you have more and more and more tension on the bow, and it gets harder and harder to hold that bow. In fact, it takes a remarkable amount of strength to hold that bow. That picture, that image of a drawn bow that is mercifully being held by restraint shows us the power of God's patience and mercy. And why do I say this? Because Peter refers to the deluge and reminds his readers that the ancient world was destroyed by water, but it is being reserved for fire and being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, 2 Peter 3.7. And so when we look at the rainbow, we need to think of the word mercy. We need to think of the idea of God's patience. We need to remember that there is coming a day when God's patience will come to an end and he will release that bow. The day of judgment is coming. He who believes in the Son has life, we learn in John 3.36. He who does not believe in the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God, meno, remains on him. God's wrath is pointed at the wicked, and it will someday be released. This is the message of the rainbow, and our message to others is that we have received mercy. <laughs> we have received the love of God. And it's not because of something that distinguished us towards God. It is simply because he extended this mercy and love and compassion and pity to us such that by grace we are now saved. Brethren, I'll tell you this. When I first began in the ministry years ago, I often thought to myself, what would it have been like to be an inhabitant of Sodom and Gomorrah? I wonder no more. Because the degree of wickedness that we see surrounding us seems to have matched the degree of corruption and wickedness that we see here, not only in America. This is everywhere. This is throughout the world. I saw the other day that our own White House in our nation's capital has two American flags flanked or set in a secondary position to a flag that is set in a primary position in the middle, and that flag is the LGBTQ pride flag. And our president, President Biden, posted this on Twitter with a picture of that morbid display where he said, Today the people's house, your house, sends a clear message to the country and to the world. America is a nation of pride. Brethren, it is a wonder that this nation still stands. It still stands because of God's mercy. It still stands because of his patience. 
You know, Peter tells us to consider the patience of the Lord as salvation. Why? Because as long as he delays, as long as he waits, as long as he withholds his judgment, today remains the day of salvation. So that we can speak to others and tell them, today is a day of mercy. Today is a day of God's patience. Don't test his patience. Cry out to him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You know, I can at least appreciate the honesty of our president. He's not pretending. They're not pretending anymore. It seems that the LGBTQ movement has become of greater importance than our constitutional republic and the freedoms that are enshrined in the Constitution. But more than this, This movement of debauchery and licentiousness has become the new religion of the day. It is the golden calf that many worship. And the sacrifices that are offered to this perverted religion are the brutal murder of the unborn children. And if they survive childbirth, then they are offered up for bodily mutilation in the name of gender-affirming care. It is all that which blasphemes our God. And I don't know if you know this, I went to U-Haul recently to get some propane and I told the individual that I moved here from North Carolina and the person looked at me and said, what? What? I've actually had this happen several times and it's it's actually getting old. And they said, why are you coming here? I mean, people are renting trucks and getting out of here. Ministry, the gospel. I'm not here for the politics, that's for sure. California's AB 957 is being promoted in the state's legislature right now. If this passes, parents can lose custody of their children for not affirming their child's claimed gender. There's a video available online right now showing Assemblywoman Lori Wilson, the bill's author, defending the policy by giving an example of a seven-year-old who announces that their gender doesn't match their sex. According to Wilson, failure to affirm the child's claim is child abuse. And under that pretext of child abuse, that child could be removed from the home. Men are trying to find ways to blaspheme the Almighty, and they must be reminded of the fact that God is being very patient. And that patience is coming out of the storehouse of his infinite mercy. But they must not tempt his patience and mercy. And this is why I say it's a wonder that this nation, the world even, has not been made into an ash heap. God is exercising his patience, his mercy. He's refraining and withholding judgment. And we are to consider his patience as salvation. As we appeal to others to cry out to Christ for redemption. Thirdly and finally, and I'm going to save the bulk of this for next time. But it ought to be obvious by now that the grace of salvation nullifies all boasting. By the time we get to verses 8 and 9 
of Ephesians 2, it's already been stipulated. But God being rich in mercy, verse 4, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that the ages in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the what? The gift of God. Not as a result of works that what? No one should boast. Of course not. It's a gift. Because it's a gift, we can't boast in ourselves, but we do boast in the gift giver. That's the only boasting that we engage in. Brethren, let me offer some exhortations from what we've studied. And again, I'm going to reserve our study for verses 8 and 9 for next time. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, the problem with quippy expressions like that is that they don't really tell you anything. And they are actually misleading. Because God's plan for those who reject him is terrifying. What this expression lacks is the warning that ought to attend the gospel. Because we need to remind people of the fact that God is being patient right now. He's exercising mercy and he is displaying his mercy when we look at the cachette in the sky. When we see the bow, the rainbow. We're not vacuum cleaner salesmen. We're not to take the gospel and make it sound more pleasant or likable or something that people might want to hear in a fleshly sense. We just need to speak the truth in love. We need to be honest. And hiding the reality of coming judgment is not being honest. In fact, it's lying. Secondly, Do you remember the Westboro Baptist Church group? Remember how the media would love to put them out on, and they would interview them and they would show what they were doing. These people would follow all kinds of groups and people and they would talk about God hates fags and really using gross, extreme language. Well, God does hate the wicked this is true, but it's not, he doesn't just hate a particular sin, sinful group. I mean, he hates all the wicked. He has a disdain for their wickedness and for them. But they took everything to a weird extreme. It really was a non-Christian cult. We, we need to be careful how we convey matters and communicate the gospel. God does hate wic- wickedness. And God's judgment is set upon those who reject him. 
but we need to remind them of the mercy and patience of God. And we also need to remember that there are many other sins to be discussed. If you want to go through a list of sins, don't just talk about homosexuality or the LGBTQ movement. I've seen groups just fixate on these particular sins, and the reality is is that once you do that and you over-fixate on particular sins, then you fail to realize or communicate the reality of the fact that there are all kinds of sins. Greed and selfishness and hedonism and slander or gossip, which goes on all the time on the internet. What we need to remind people of is that even if they got rid of their homosexual lifestyle, they're still sinners, right? We're not trying to reform people's behavior. We're trying to help them to understand that they need Christ and that only Christ can redeem them. So we need to be careful not just to fixate on one particular sin or just two or three. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there are more sins than we can even think of or enumerate in a single setting. Thirdly and finally, consider the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3. I think I said it before that the epistle to the Ephesians, I like to think of, it really is an epistle of love. Because Paul keeps talking about the love of God again and again and again. And he prayed. He prayed for the Ephesians, bowing his knees before the Father, praying for them, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, he says in verse 17. And then he says, and that you being rooted and grounded in what? Love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which what? Surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's a remarkable thing. Paul says, I'm praying that you would know that which is unknowable. (laughs) Think about that. I pray that you'll know that which is ultimately unknowable. That's another way of saying my prayer for you is that you would grow in your understanding of the love, the dimensional realities of God's love, but know this, the love of God will always surpass your capacity to understand because he is infinite. So we have this privilege of growing each day in our understanding and appreciation of the great love that our God has set upon us, the great love that he has poured out in our hearts. And it is our privilege to tell others that this love did not come upon us because of our merit, but it came to us out of the riches of God's mercy. We didn't deserve it. There's no way we could say we deserved it. With this in mind, I'd like to ask you to turn to a hymn. Number 43.
Great is thy faithfulness. Brethren, when we look at hymnals and hymns, we ought to think about the texts upon which they're based. Because, and let me say this, there are hymns that are good and there are hymns that are not good. And I'm always glad to avoid the hymns and songs and spiritual songs made by men that are actually not good. We need to be careful. We need to be selective. I believe this is a a helpful and good hymn. And it's helpful and good because of the text that it is constantly pointing us to, the ideas that it is pointing us to. Lamentations 3.22 and 23 which says the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Then he says this. Jeremiah then says this. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. That word, helek, speaks of the idea of someone who owns a piece of land, a a, a bit of territory. He's basically saying, and one translation has it this way, the Lord is all I have. And then he says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is all we have. He's our greatest good. And he is, in fact, our true possession of riches. All the riches in the heavenly places in Christ, they're ours because of him. So think of the refrain. Think of the what we're about to repeat. And we're going to repeat it three times in this hymn. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Brethren, let's stand together and let's sing to the glory of our God, hymn number 43. 